Хочу підкреслити, в 1991 році наша держава стала саме незаконний і демократичний шлях. Цим шляхом ми і будемо йти далі. Тільки правові кроки, виважені рішення і національні інтереси. As Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine enters its ninth month, one large question lingers. Just how does this war end? Should the West push for a total defeat of Russia, or should it attempt to broker negotiations? That was one of the most contentious issues on the table as U.S. President Joe Biden and French President Emmanuel Macron met in Washington this week. So what are the possible endgames in Ukraine? And what does Europe look like when the war is over? Well, I've got just the guest to unpack all of it, so stick around. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic downtown Washington is former U.S. State Department official Max Bergman, who served, among other posts, as a member of the Secretary of State's Policy Plan staff and as a speechwriter for former Secretary of State John Kerry. These days, Max is director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Welcome back to The Vertical, Max. Thanks for having me, Brian. Thanks for coming on. And also joining us from downtown Washington is Jeff Bankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I should also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the Department of Defense. Welcome back to The Vertical, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. So uh, so President Biden met with his French counterpart, Emmanuel Macron, in Washington this week. The state visit was a clear effort to mend a rift between the United States and its oldest ally. And one of the main issues on the table was Ukraine. Uh, the Biden administration has been pushing for Russia's total defeat, while Macron and many in Europe believe the West should be pursuing a negotiated settlement. Uh, what is unsaid, of course, is that such a settlement, settlement would almost certainly involve Ukraine ceding territory to Russia, effectively rewarding Vladimir Putin's aggression. Macron and Biden appeared to split the difference, um, with Biden saying he would meet Putin if and only if Putin showed a willingness to end the war, something he has not done. Um, as Macron and Biden were meeting, Russia continued weaponizing the winter, shelling Ukraine's energy infrastructure and effectively cutting off power in Kherson. Max, at your time at the, in the State Department, um, you've dealt with similar situations to this Franco-American rift we're seeing right now over Ukraine and other issues. How did you see the Biden-Macron meeting and this general disagreement between Washington and Paris about how the war ends? Well, I think I, think I would... I think characterize it a little bit differently. I'm not sure if I see a, a wider rift between France and the U.S. I think, I think there, when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, there's a, a difference of perspective. I do think that general Franco-American relations have been on the upswing since there was that massive rift last year mm -hmm. with the uh, submarine August deal. But I think when it comes to Russia, I think the Biden administration, I think the White House finds it actually quite useful that there is an open channel between Macron and Putin with the departure of Angela Merkel. Uh, there isn't another European leader that kind of has the direct line 
uh, with the Kremlin. Uh, and so, uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's more politically difficult for the, for president Biden to just pick up the phone and talk to Putin. And we clearly see an indication on the white house that they want to have an open channel, mm -hmm. uh, to the Kremlin with Bill Burns meeting with his counterpart and, and, uh, Jake Sullivan, uh, talking with, uh, Nikolai Patrushev. So I, I think that the U S you know, you haven't seen the white house complain that Macron talks to Putin the way that other Eastern European leaders have. Now, when it comes to the potential rift, uh, where I, I do think there is a, a, a disagreement, is that I think the French are nervous. I think Macron is nervous about uh, Putin's uh, quote unquote humiliation should uh, Ukraine continue to go on the military offensive. Uh, and I think the French are worried about the potential uh, uh, instability in Moscow. And they sort of prefer, I think, in some ways, the devil they know as opposed to the devil they don't. Um, I frankly think that that is, I, I, I disagree with them, but mm -hmm. I also think this is sort of manageable. The focus on negotiations, I think, is just a non-starter, given that the Ukrainians are going to lead that process. And so I think what we saw here was that the president, President Biden, uh, giving a little bit and saying, yes, he would sit down with with Russian president, if, if the you know he were to to make some movements to to end the war, I think that's a reasonable stance. And I also think that that the French are not um, are aware that if uh, you know that they're that the Ukrainians are making military gains right now. So I think in some some ways we look to find differences. I think this is not so much a rift, but a slight difference in perspective. That uh, we'll see. It could become more of an issue should should the French really try to put pressure on the Ukrainians, but it's just not going to work. You know, Ukraine is feels that they have the military advantage and they're going to pursue that uh, as long as they feel that they don't have a military advantage. Well, I mean, the U.S. is the linchpin. I mean, you're you're right to say the Ukrainians lead on this, and this is what this is almost a mantra for the Biden administration and for Biden himself on this. But there is this the fact that if the West put pressure on Ukraine. If the West said you got to sit down at the negotiating table, or we're not going to continue arming you, that would that would affect force the Ukrainians' hand. Do you see a world in which the political dynamics would force the cause the West to force Ukraine's hand that way? So uh, I, I find it very hard to see, and and here's why. Um, you know, there I, I have some experience in in uh, working with the Israelis and uh, in our in our security cooperation relationship which is quite well established. And, you know, the Israelis have tremendous influence here mm -hmm. in, in the United States. And if the United, if, if an administration wanted to create a rift or really push them, they would have ways of pushing back. And this is not just true with Israel. This is true with, you know, past uh, U.S. relationships, superpower client relationships don't work just one way. And if the, if the Zelensky government felt that the United States was putting you know, unfair pressure on them to premature, uh, to make premature concessions, to go to the negotiating table that they thought, to basically asking things that they thought uh, was really against their interest. All they would have to do would be call up a reporter at the New York Times, uh, leak that that's what ha what's happening. And there would be a huge uproar here in mm -hmm. Washington to attack the Biden administration. So there, there are ways and levers that the Ukrainians have um, uh, to push back against the U.S. That said, the Ukrainians don't have any interest in creating a real rift with the United States. And the fact that we're not necessarily seeing that rip open into the public, I think, is an indication 
that generally we're all on the same page. Now, there's going to be differences. There's going to be, you know, different points of emphasis. The French are going to pursue one line uh, and, and, you know, we might pursue another. But uh, that, you know, that has also some benefits where the French perhaps have an open line with, with Moscow while we don't. Um, but I think where we are right now is that we're in general alignment. And I think we'll know if there is a real rift and the United States is really pushing Ukraine against its will. And just to be clear, not that there's no indication whatsoever that that's happening, but I'm just looking at the political dynamics right now. I'm looking at the, the dynamics inside the United States. Um, there's there's rumblings on the on the left and the right, actually. The center's holding, like we the way we put it a few weeks ago, is the the area between the 20 yard lines are is fine. Um, the the the, other, the the red zone is a little bit different. Um, but but I'm all, I'm all more concerned about this situation with Europe because the Europeans do tend to see this differently. There seems to be this fear that if Ukraine is too successful. Putin might do something crazy or it could result in instability in Russia or something something like that. And the Europeans seem to be and I, I worry about keeping that transatlantic unity together. You've always been very bullish on it. Jeff, Jeff, how do you see all this? Yeah, thanks. So I think, you know, there's not a single European perspective on this war, right? I think there are multiple European perspectives. And you talked about France, um, France and I think Germany as well. Um, have been uh, a little more cautious. And I think both uh, Macron and, and Chancellor Schultz recognize that at the end of the day, they're going to have to live with Russia next door. Um, and, you know, we saw Schultz a couple of days ago talking about uh, the possibility that we could go back to the old security order in Europe after the war, which I think is highly uh, unlikely, but I think is also reflective of, of where a lot of the thinking in, in Berlin is. But you know, if you go east a couple of hours to Warsaw, it's a very different conversation. Right. And I think that, you know, these divisions within Europe um, are equally as stark as, as any transatlantic divisions. And that means that, you know, if we're thinking about the EU as a whole, it's not going to take any sort of dramatic steps just because there, there's no sort of unity. And, and one of the things that we're seeing in the context of this war is that some of the states along uh, Europe's eastern flank, like Poland, uh, are becoming more influential in, in some of these mm -hmm. uh, intra-European councils. Now, obviously, the Polish government doesn't have a line to Moscow, um, but I think they're getting a lot of credit here for the, the role that they're playing in, in providing financial and, and military support to Ukraine and in, in hosting refugees. Um, and I think that's going to weigh uh, on the equation as well. Um, and then the other thing I would add is just when it comes to the level of financial and military support that's that's being provided. I mean, the U.S. is, is far and away ahead of, of Europe on, on both of these fronts, and this has been a source of, of pretty perpetual frustration mm -hmm. here in Washington. But part of what that means is that, you know, uh, what is it, the, the one who pays the piper calls the tune. Uh, right. So as, as far as sort of setting transatlantic policy on this issue, the fact that the U.S. is playing a much more prominent role uh, as, a, as a security provider and, and as a provider of financial aid means that, you know, there are going to be questions and concerns from the European side, but as long as it's the U.S. that, that's taking the lead, then I, I think that U.S. Mm -hmm. voice is going to echo loudest. Right. It's something I, the Biden's uh, announcement yesterday, it, I, I, I hope he is not indicating a very real uh, uh, intention of sitting down with Putin because I, I get a little bit nervous about this because playing this negotiation game, it, this is right out of Putin's playbook. Um, Max, you saw it with your former boss, John Kerry, um, in, the, in the negotiations over Syria, right? Um, the, 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 the Russians use the 
the, the negotiating tactic to buy themselves time. Do you think that the administration's looking at this with really clear eyes right now about this? Was this was this basically a, a sop to Macron? Um, and or or is 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 Biden really? Do you think he has a real intention of of entering some kind of negotiations with Putin? Uh, I don't I don't think there's any uh, uh, real intention to to you know try to sit down with Putin in the next few weeks or January or February. I think this is that it, and I think that's part of the reason why you saw I think some U.S. Um, I wouldn't say pressure, maybe suggesting to the Ukrainians that, hey, indicating that you would be open to negotiations could just be good to just maintain right. uh, Europeans on side. And I think, look, if, if Vladimir Putin was willing to end the war and sit down and have talks uh, over you know, Ukraine's territory, territory I, I think that should be something that the president is willing to, to sit down on. Now, do we think that's going to happen? No. Um, right. And so I think in some ways it's it's an immaterial concession because it's not really a concession because you don't expect it to happen. And I think just one thing is I think, you know, we have trouble envisioning how this war ends. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's where the Europeans are fixated is that this has to end in negotiations. Now, well, that's, I think, their perspective that this has to end in negotiations, doesn't it? And in some ways, they're right. Now, even if there is like a total capitulation on the Russian side uh, and the Russians just retreated back to uh, the pre-2014 borders, well, you would still probably want to re-engage the Russians then about trying to, you know, potentially not uh, have this happen in three, four, five years, or what would be the relationship with Russia afterwards. And while that is something I think Berlin and, and Paris are thinking about, but in some ways we just have no idea because as you know, our friend Michael Kaufman likes to say all the time, war is contingent, and, but so is diplomacy. And so diplomacy is contingent on all these events playing out and it's so in flux. So I think in some ways the, this kind of debate about um, negotiations, there just isn't a, a negotiation to be had right now, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't be open to something in the future. Jeff, would you would you concur with that? Because I'm I'm thinking like, what would these negotiations be about if they were to happen? What is on the table? And I, I never have gotten a satisfactory answer to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much agree with that. I think if you look historically, almost all wars end uh, at the negotiating table. And short of, you know, a 1917 style collapse in Russia, which I think is possible, but certainly not what we can count on. Uh, I think at the end of the day, this war is going to end through some kind of a negotiation. But I, I completely agree with what Max said. We're not at a point where we can envision anything of, of what that looks like. There, there's too much uh, movement. There's too much flux. And there's not a willingness in either Kiev or Moscow to negotiate at this point. After uh, President Biden's announcement yesterday, there was a response from uh, the Kremlin. And, and Dmitry Peskov, the, the Kremlin press secretary, said, we're not going to negotiate if that means that if the condition is that we're not going to fight in Ukraine anymore. He's like, that's not realistic and we're not going to do it. I think both the Ukrainians and the Russians have an idea that they can achieve something that looks like victory at this point. And so, you know, political scientists talk about ripeness of conflicts for settlement. This conflict is not ripe for settlement. Right. And I don't think it's going to be for the foreseeable future. Right. And what, I mean, what are the realistic scenarios? I mean, in one sense, this looks kind of like Kabuki theater to me in a little bit, though. Basically, because it's basically the U.S. is pretending it's open to negotiations when it's really not. The Russians are they, they make an offer. They know the Russians are going to reject um, the, the the Europeans want 
are kind of uh, are, are more nervous about the push for a totally Ukrainian victory than the Americans are. But everybody's kind of play acting. Is that is that what we're seeing right now? Is uh, Max? Is that is this basically just how diplomacy works out? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a little bit like everyone is. No one's no one's you know maybe think of a junior high dance where no one's willing to go out on the dance floor and we're all just <laughs> standing on the side. I and, but I do think that there is sort of. In, in addition to the Ukrainian signaling a willingness to negotiate is helpful inside of Europe. It's also probably helpful globally um, to indicate that Ukraine is willing to sit down, but the Russians aren't. And so, yeah, so you have this some of this diplomatic blame game. I think what I would say in terms of negotiations, look, right now, I think the Ukrainians feel very good about themselves where they are militarily, I think for good reason. And to be fair, they have surprised everybody throughout you know, right. this conflict. Um, so I, I, this is not to underestimate them, but what I would say is that let's just you know fast forward a scenario in which Russia's mobilization works. Uh, you know they they use the winter to train their forces. The Ukrainians don't really make any gains over the winter. The conflict kind of sets into a stalemate, and basically where we are now is where we are uh, in a year from now. And at right. that point, perhaps you know the Ukrainians having going facing another winter with you know with. Iranian drones hitting their power sector, um, that there is a willingness to kind of, okay, let's let's now talk about some terms. And But so you have to hit a point of exhaustion, of stalemate, in which neither side can really win and both sides are kind of sick of it. And we're just not there yet because right. at least on the Ukrainian side, things are looking okay. And I think on the Russian side, they're like, well, if we can just hold what we have, that's a victory for us. So mm. I think we're a ways away from the potential for negotiations, uh, especially on the Ukrainian side. I mean, I have a hard time imagining a world in which the Ukrainians are going to be willing to cede territory. I just really have a, a, a hard time imagining that world, uh, especially now as we know what's gone on in the territory that Russia has occupied. Um, we're, we're, we're not just talking about territory. We're talking about people. Uh, yeah. We're talking about Ukrainian citizens. Um, and I have a hard time imagining that. So when I'm kind of thinking through the realistic scenarios for this war ending, I really don't see any other than a complete victory for the Ukrainian side, right? That's the only way I see this ending because just because I have a hard time imagining the Ukrainians and justifiably so ever wanting to give up an inch of territory to Russia. Am I, Jeff, am I wrong about that? I don't think you're wrong, but I think there's also the question of what is what capabilities do they have, right? I, I don't think that for the Ukrainians, there's a willingness right now to, to cede territory, not only because of the, the human cost, but because of the precedent that it would set and what it would mean for their future security. But look, I mean, if, as Max said, if this war is still going on a year from now, if it doesn't look like the Ukrainians are able to make any further progress, if it's just kind of settled into static trench warfare with attrition on both sides, maybe there's a recognition that they're not going to get that territory back. And I think that's what ultimately is going to determine when and where and what the right. negotiations look like, is what is the situation on the ground? I mean, one scenario that I think is, is plausible and perhaps even probable is something that looks like the standoff on the Korean Peninsula, um, which is, you know, the, the war per se never ends, but there's kind of a recognition that neither side can really advance and it's just kind of settled into this long-term quasi-violent but still very threatening standoff. But in, in that scenario, 
basically Russia annexes much of East, uh, what it occupies in eastern Ukraine right now, right? The portions of Donetsk, Luhansk, uh, and Kherson, in uh, 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 Zaporizhia Oblast that they control, they would annex um, effect- effectively and create a fait accompli. Um, yeah. Which again, I again, I, I have a hard time imagining the Ukrainians uh, accepting that, right, and not continuing to fight. I just really can't. I can't see. I don't see that world. Yeah, I I, I think again politically that's not going to be palatable in Kiev, but in terms of what is practical on the ground, I mean, it, I, I can envision a scenario where there's not really an alternative. I don't right. think that's anybody's preference, but. War has its own dynamic that has its own logic. And I think that sometimes it ends up with outcomes that sides politically for one reason or another can't or don't want to accept. Right. I mean, in the the the, the predictions for the, the analysis from the military folks has been actually pretty bullish in terms of Ukraine's chances. I mean, General Ben Hodges, the former commander of U.S. Army Europe, a friend of all of ours, he thinks by this time next year, Ukraine's going to have all its territory back. He he really thinks that, and I I have no I, he knows a lot more about this this kind of thing than I do, right? Um, and and you're, there are, there are others that are that are pretty bullish on this. I'm just wondering if we're are we getting kind of too too bullish on Ukraine, or is there? I mean, I guess this winter is going to tell the story, you know? Yeah, well, I I think it's going to tell a lot about all of the participants in this conflict, about Ukraine, about Russia, about Europe, about the United States. Look, I think. We can draw on lots of historical parallels, but I think there are plenty of examples of Russia engaging in these kind of aggressive operations, trying to rely on mass to overcome to overcome its technological and organizational limitations, and eventually hitting a wall because they simply don't have the logistical, the financial, the material capacity to keep doing that. You know, I mentioned 1917. I mean, that's basically what happened to the Russians during the First World War, is they just kept throwing resources at this war of aggression and at some point the system couldn't handle it anymore and it just kind of broke down and i think that's a very plausible outcome for for this particular war as well but we don't know on what time frame that's going to happen and we don't know you know what the the carrying capacity on the russian side versus the, the ukrainian side versus the the european side is going to be right. so i think you know it, it, i think one of the problems is that both sides in this conflict think that time is on their side and they can't both be right Right, right. Uh, yeah, in the, in, the, in the beginning of the war, the conventional wisdom was time was on Russia's side, that a war of attrition favors Russia. But that is flipped. And a lot of military analysts have said that, that, that now time is pretty much on the uh, on, on the Ukrainian side. Jeff, I know you're a historian by 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 by, by training. Um, what you, you noted the 1917 example. Are there anything is there anything else history teaches us about where this might be going? <laughs> um. Gosh, maybe an I unfair mean, question. Yeah, <laughs> how much Sorry. time do we have? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I mean, look, you know, populations don't respond well to military occupation, um, especially when their uh, identities and, and cultures are being targeted. Um, I think even if Russia ends up uh, in de facto control of various parts of, of Ukrainian territory. They have to expect that there's going to be rather serious resistance. Uh, and I think that resistance will probably continue to be supported from outside, um, as this was the, the military planning that the U.S. was engaged in before the, the Russian invasion, because there was the assumption that, you know, the, the Russian conventional offensive was going to succeed. And then the plan after that was for there to be uh, you know, a, a sort of underground and, and partisan warfare. So I, I think if 
there is uh, an effort to freeze this conflict if Russia does end up in de facto control of, of various parts of Ukrainian territory. They are going to face that kind of resistance. It is going to be supported from the outside. Um, I think that, you know, the limitations of the Russian political system, uh, which, you know, despite everything that's happened since, haven't changed all that much in 100 years, uh, are still uh, going to impose constraints on, on what is capable. Um, I think that, you know, the fragility of autocracies and, and the basic long-term resilience of, of democratic systems is going to play a role in this as well. Um, and that's why I think that my own view is that over the longer term, this is going to be increasingly difficult for Russia to sustain. Um, but whether we get to the longer term sort of remains to be seen. I mean, I think there are lots of historical lessons here. Right. Yeah, no, that's why I, I did want to draw you out on that. Uh, sorry, I didn't warn you that was coming. <laughs> That's one thing. Another thing jumped out at me about the Biden Macron meeting uh, this week, and that is that if you look at the the joint statement that was released, it was a pretty strong statement. It was a very strong statement that France and the United States both are are pledged to hold uh, every, the Russians accountable for the war crimes committed in Ukraine. A lot of that jumped out at me. I mean, is, is, so I mean, is this you start? We started out by saying maybe this rift is overplayed. I mean, is um, how did you how did you interpret the the the, the joint statement in that in that regard? It, I, I thought it was very strong. And look, you know, I would recommend everyone go back and and look at Macron's speech at the UN General Assembly, which was perhaps one of the, I think, strongest and clearest articulations of Russian culpability and, uh, uh, and um, in, in defense of, of Ukraine that we've seen. And he was doing so on a global stage, recognizing that uh, the, the West had felt that it maybe had lost um, uh, some of the narrative uh, uh, battle over this, this war. And Macron, Macron did in, an incredibly exceptional job. Look, and that's part of the reason why I'm not that concerned about mm -hmm. rifts with Europeans is that this has been a really eye-opening um, event in Europe. I mean, it has been it is sort of a 9/11 style mm -hmm. uh, uh, geopolitical awakening. Now, you know, it, but what happens is that then you start implementing what do you what are you going to do about it? What you know, what sort of equipment is France going to provide? And that's where suddenly you know, it, well, France believes in having a military that's ready to go. So it's not going to give all of its artillery. It's going to give some of it. Um, but I think what we see here is that just there is this perspective that what happens after, that they will have to live with a Russia next door. And so they want to maintain that line uh, to the Kremlin. And I also think that if you think about it this way, Macron doesn't really face any negative political uh, reaction domestically for talking with Vladimir right. If Biden was, you know, on the phone with him every month, then there would be negative political reaction. And so I think it's useful to everyone, frankly, uh, that that line remain open. Yeah, no, I mean, in, in, in one sense, it does look like a, a game of good cop, bad cop, right? That, that's that's what appears to be. And Max, you noted earlier that uh, war is contingent, diplomacy is contingent. Something else that's contingent is the uh, the European security architecture. And that's what I want to talk about in the second half of the program. So we'll shift gears now. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and take out our crystal balls to look at possible scenarios for a post-war Europe and its security architecture. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to The Power of 
Political Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from downtown Washington is former U.S. State Department official Max Bergman, who served among other posts as a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as a speechwriter for former Secretary of State John Kerry. These days, Max is director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Also joining us from downtown Washington is Jeff Bankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I should also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Українці більше ніколи не будуть камінчиками якихось там імперій. Ми вже вибороли це і забезпечимо для нашої держави всю повноту незалежності. Russia's war on Ukraine is about much more than Ukraine. It's about the future of European security. Picking up on our discussion for the first half, a world in which Russia suffers a total defeat could potentially alter the security architecture architecture of Eastern Europe in a very positive way, diminishing Moscow's ability to threaten and meddle in the affairs of its neighbors. On the other hand, if Russia is able to continue to hold Ukrainian territory, Moscow would likely be emboldened in other places like Belarus, Georgia, and Moldova. Max, what, everything's contingent. You said it in the first half. What are your, what are your scenarios for post, uh, post-war European security? So, you know, I think we talked quite a bit about the negative scenario, and it's not one that I, I should say that I think is, is necessarily likely. I think it's possible, and that's, you know, basically Russia maintains a stalemate. I think that is sort of where uh, we would be faced. And then the, the problem that we would face with that scenario is that Russia would then, um, there would be kind of this race against time where Russia would be actively working to rebuild its military capacity and as with the Ukrainians, but also as with the Europeans, because in some ways, a lot of the European militaries are Potemkin militaries. They're not that strong. Mm -hmm. They're very much dependent on the United States. And so I think that's a real challenge. However, I do think the 1917 scenario uh, is really not out of the question, you know, when wars happen, they cause dramatic ripple effects, particularly if they go badly. And I really take what General Hodges and others, you know, their military assessments to heart, that I think the Ukrainians have the military advantage. And one thing that I think we could see is that, you know, Russians rely on sort of their way of war is, is, is they accept high casualties. But when those high casualties have been 30-something men that have been pulled from their families, uh, and sent to the front lines with little to no training, and they end up dead. That creates political, rever- uh, you know, uh, implications back home much more so than eighteen to twenty something, uh, eighteen to twenty year old dying because thirty something men have dependents, uh, and that it leaves much more of a hole in the community. Um, 
And I, I, I think the, the potential for regime stability, for the Putin regime to be um, uh, really unwound by this war is high. So mm -hmm. what does that mean? I think the one thing that we have not thought about because of, the, of how atrocious and horrible this war has been is what happens if it all collapses in, in Moscow. Uh, and the one thing we haven't really done is offered a vision for post-Putin Russia uh, for a, a way for Russia to potentially come back into the European fold, not obviously not immediately, but over time. And I think the problem by not offering that vision, by saying that we think Russia is part of Europe, is that you kind of minimize the incentives for folks in Russia to mobilize against the regime, mm -hmm. to mobilize and say there could be a more positive future. And, you know, in the 1990s, we began to think about what would it look like to have Russia maybe, you know, the NATO-Russia founding act to, to bring Russia back into the fold. And I think we need to not buy into the rhetoric that the Russians are inherently anti, you know, will, will always be at our throats. I mean, we, uh, you know, I, the, German, the German story, I think, is one that we can at least hold out there. Whether we think it's plausible, whether we think that will happen, I think it's at the very least worthwhile uh, uh, begin to articulating uh, a, a vision for a, a post-Putin future that could include Russia, that could reincorporate Russia back into the fold. Not the regime, but Russia. Yeah, no, that that point's taken. On this, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty hawkish on this because I actually, after watching this movie a couple times, um, I, I, I keep thinking that. I mean, my, my thinking is that. There is, I don't want to say Russia is inherently or you know, uh, uh, re revanchist. I mean, but there are strong proclivities toward that. It is the default setting, and breaking that default setting is very is very difficult. Jeff, do you share? I mean, did you, how, what, what's your take on this? I mean, how a, how a post-war Russia should be treated? I want to talk a bit about the, the security architecture, but uh, yeah. uh, we're, we're a couple of Russia geeks. How should how, how should a, how should the post-war Russia situation unfold because I'm skeptical, quite frankly, even if, even if Putin's yeah. gone. I, I mean, I have thoughts about security architecture too, but on this, so one, I think that the, the possibility of a 1917 style data of this is, is certainly uh, on the table and we have to be prepared for that. But even if it's not, I think we have to keep in mind that Vladimir Putin is not getting any younger. Um, he has created a very centralized personalistic regime where he has removed all of the institutional ballast that uh, once existed. And unlike a lot of other personalist regimes, it's not like he's grooming a successor, right? He doesn't have a, a child, for instance, that he's trying to maneuver into position to take over when he's gone. So I think when Putin leaves one way or another, whether he's pushed out in a palace coup, in a revolution, or he just drops dead of old age, there's going to be really profound instability in Russia. Yeah. And what that means as far as the war in Ukraine, I think, is a, is a really important question is, is a really open question if the war is still going on at that point. Um, you know, I, I've heard a lot of people say, be careful what you wish for. What comes after Putin could be worse. Right. Um, at this point, I'm not sure that's true. Um, you know, at some point, maybe six or seven years ago, that was a, a sentiment I might have subscribed to. But given the domestic repressions and the military aggression that Putin's engaged in now, I think it's, it's hard to envision a, another leader who would be as bad. Even if it's somebody else from the security services who takes over, I think there's probably going to be some effort to uh, come to terms with the cost of the, of the war in Ukraine. Um, and maybe that's the moment where, you know, there's some push for uh, a negotiated settlement of one kind or another. As far as really bringing Russia back in from the cold, 
Um, I think that's something that if it can be done over the longer term would be very positive both for Russia and for European security architecture more generally. But Brian, I'm, I'm sort of with you in, in thinking that there's the hope for that is is at this point not much more than a hope. And you know, Max and I were just talking about um, the, the book that I did on empire and imperial legacies. And I think this is one of the reasons why is because Russia does have this kind of imperial construction. It has this sort of imperial DNA that has continually come to the fore under different kinds of leadership. And until there is uh, not only a leadership that actively seeks to reject that legacy, but also some kind of structural transformation that makes it less salient in terms of Russia's political culture, um, that's gonna be really hard. And you know, Brian, you mentioned Germany, but of course, Germany was, it was occupied not only by the Americans. Yes, it was not only defeated, but it was occupied. Its state structure was dismantled. It had a new elite that was brought in. It had a very comprehensive sort of political reconstruction that I don't think is on the table for Russia. So I would like to be hopeful about the eventual inclusion of Russia in some kind of common security architecture, at least something more robust than, say, the OSCE. But um, I think that's uh, you know something that we can hope for, but also have to plan for other contingencies. Right. Yeah. Max, Max, do you want to add something? You, 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 yeah, have, you look no, like you want to say I, something. Yeah, no, I, 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 let me just say, I don't disagree with anything that, that Jeff said. Um, in fact, I think when we, um, especially I think one part that, that I think there's been this sort of conventional wisdom that what will come after Putin must necessarily be worse. I actually think if the war triggers a shift, um, the reason why it will trigger a shift is not to pursue a more hardline approach. I mean, it's sort of hard to see a more hardline approach. I mean, there. Although that's what that's what's happening from Putin's right flank. I mean, he's getting right. attacked by these military bloggers on this. And yeah, and so what he's been demonstrating is that you can influence him. No need to depose him if if you have influence. And I think if anything, if there's a, an actual you know collapse of the Russian military, the reaction will be to end the war. To, and that it will be come from the other direction, and there'll be a much more rational direction for Russia to pursue, to right. end the war, seek to uh, get, gain some sanctions allevi alleviation, like try to come to terms with the West in some way, shape, or form. And I, I, I would, you know, Jeff's book is is excellent, and I'm going to do yes. a quick plug. I've, we, we did, I've read it. <laughs> yeah, we just did a, a book talk at CSIS, and everyone can go uh, check that out at our, our website. Um, and I, I think the imperial legacy is really complicating a potential Russian future. That said, I think in some ways the post-Soviet nature, the Soviet Union kind of uh, meant that Russia, that, that when, de when de democracy was brought, uh, there wasn't really, there was still this effort to rebuild Russia's imperial grandeur. And in some ways Putin has sort of done that, but the collapse of this regime, I, if it does collapse, I think you know would would I think really lead to a counter reaction uh, mm -hmm. in a direction that we just don't really know. Um, so so that's to sort of agree with everyone's pessimism and skepticism. I I still think for the West to kind of float the idea of potential uh, inclusion, whether or not that would happen, uh, is really powerful. Just in the Ukrainian sense, that Ukraine wanting to be part of the European Union was really powerful. Our our sort of biggest attribute when it comes to regime change is we have no tools to do that. It's just the potential inclusion in the West tends to be the thing that really motivates people. And I would say that's something we can, that's a power we can think about leveraging and we haven't done so um, because we don't actually believe that it will be possible, but you never know.
Yeah, I could just go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, I, I was going to say, you know, I I agree with that, and I think that was one of our big failings at the end of the Cold War was that there was this kind of abstract discussion about including Russia in some kind of broader European security architecture, but it didn't go very far. And already by the early 1990s, it was kind of off the table. Um, and I mean, there were there were reasons for that, but right. I, th I think once that idea was off the table, it became much easier to imagine the kind of world that we're in now, which is one that's based much more on conflict between that European security order and Russia than one in which Russia is part of that order. So I think, you know, when this war ends and hopefully when, when the current regime is gone, there will probably be something of a window of opportunity that may not be any wider than the one that we had in the 1990s. And if we don't try to take advantage of it while it's there, it, it's going to close much as that one did. But it's going to, but it, it, it has to take two. I mean, Russia has yeah. to truly want this, and I don't see any indication of that happening. I mean, there was a what if you look back through Russian history, you see basically one period where Russia was not imperial, right? It was the period from '91, uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union, to 2008, the Russian invasion of Georgia. Mm -hmm. That's how I, you're you're looking at mm -hmm. a period of what 17 years, right? Yeah. Um, not a lot of time. And when you when you when you look at the full sweep of Russian history, and I think the problem now is we think that was the, the normal state of affairs. That wasn't the normal state of affairs. The normal state of affairs was some form of conflict or cold war with either Russia or the Soviet Union. That was that that's and that's what I expect to see when this war is over, regardless of how it ends. Right. It's just a matter of where the line is going to be drawn. Where is the new folder gap? Right? Um, is it, is it going to be drawn along the, the 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 eastern border of Ukraine, or is it going to be drawn along the western border, or someplace in between? That's basically what this is about. But I I see a world after this, one way or the other, in some form of new Cold War with you know with with a with a divided Europe. Just the dividing lines are going to be a lot farther to the east. Um, feel free to to, to slam my. Uh, my, my, my pessimism with, with a dose of optimism, Max. I know. <laughs> no, I, I mean, look, if, if, if the Putin regime de facto remains, that is what we will have. And I think when I talk about offering uh, Russia potentially a path back, it's a post-Putin path right. back. And I, I don't see any, uh, any other direction. Uh, I do think that if there is some sort of regime shift, collapse, uh, Putin leaves. Um, and the effort is on the part of the Russians to both make some amends with the West. I, you know, I could see a Russia that is both has imperial designs on its neighborhood, but then also views itself as not anti-European and not anti-Western. And in some ways seeks, because, you know, at, at a certain point, the, the NATO line has been drawn if Ukraine is moving towards the EU, well, that's sort of a closed off, you know, territory. And maybe they shift back toward focusing on Central Asia. Um, and, and so, you know, I think the, one of the real insights of Jeff's book is the borderlands, the, the focus there, I think will, will remain. Right. And that Russia <clears throat> won't let that go, similar to how the United States is sort of seen in Latin America. But perhaps it will be much more of Russia will seek to be a great power. And if, you know, if Russia's economy is, is, is back on, you know, is doing well, Russia is, you know, a, it's not hard for Russia to be a great global power. And it doesn't necessarily have to be 
constantly at odds with the West. And I think that's the shift that maybe you could see. And that's where uh, security, to bring it to the security architecture, where you right. can see, you know, talks with Russia, conventional forces, Europe, you know, arms control is dead until it suddenly isn't. And right. that, you know, there, there is a real effort to maintain um, uh, a degree of confidence and stability that right now seems impossible because you how can you can't do that with the Putin regime because you can't right. trust it. But, uh, but perhaps, you know, that could be back again it, with a new regime where confidence is built and then the relations improve. And we're, you know, and if it's even if it, Russia isn't going to be a liberal democracy, then perhaps it's simply not at odds with us in the way that um, it's been so determined to be at odds with us over the last two decades. Well, I mean, that's the world we lived in from 91 to 2008, basically. Russia still had its imperial designs. It was pretending to be a democracy, in my opinion. <laughs> it, it, it was, it, but, it, but it still had its imperial designs. It was still trying to, you know, control uh, the former Soviet space. Um, we saw, you know, the efforts to meddle in Crimea and Eastern Ukraine did not begin in 2014. You know, they begin almost from the moment of, uh, of Ukrainian independence. But another thing I want to touch on here is the centrality of Ukraine in Russian strategic thinking um, in a lot of ways. I mean, Zbigniew Brzezinski famously said, Russia without Ukraine can't be an empire. Russia with Ukraine is an empire. Jeff, would losing Ukraine what what effect do you think that would have domestically in Russia? Would that would that alter mm -hmm. the DNA of the body politic in ways that are very unpredictable? I, yes and no. Um, so I think Ukraine as Ukraine is central to this sort of Russian imperial identity, and Putin has made that very clear in his discussions about the relationship between Russia and Ukraine and between the Russian people and the Ukrainian people. But even without Ukraine, Russia is still an empire, right? It, there's still Chechnya, there's still the North and South Caucasus, there's centrally, I mean, Russia is constructed that way throughout its history and is going to continue to look like that. That said, I think if it loses, quote unquote, Ukraine in such a way that, you know, recognizes that Ukraine cannot be reabsorbed, and not only that, but that Ukraine develops along a very different political, economic, security track, one that's deeply integrated with your Atlantic security structures, that does have to force a reckoning in Russia with the nature of its relationship with its neighbors and its relationship uh, with Europe. I've heard people make the case that part of the reason Russia is so concerned about what happens in Ukraine is precisely because of the closeness between the two, the shared culture, the, the economic, the political, the familial linkages. If Ukraine can succeed as a Western-style liberal democracy and then that raises the question of why can't Russia succeed on the same track? Right. Um, and I, I think that's the, the the power of the Ukrainian example is is if Ukraine succeeds in that way, it puts a lot, it creates a new narrative about what it means to be, you know, Russian, and also about what the possibilities are for Russia itself. Um, I don't think that means that Russia ceases to be an empire. Or Russia ceases to have this this kind of imperial DNA. But I think it does raise some pretty profound questions about what kind of possibilities exist for Russia's future that maybe right now are being written out of the story because of this belief about what, what Russia is. Right. Yeah, this is one of the biggest known unknowns we have here, because I've, I've often thought like losing Ukraine decisively where it is over. No, I, I'm. I tend to think that that will have a profound resonance inside of Russia. Um, before bumping up against the end, but the last thing I did want to talk about, kind of circling back to the to the European security architecture. Um, I, I recently wrote a piece in foreign affair and foreign policy, um, arguing that a Ukrainian victory would create a 1989 moment. 
um, just as kind of Moscow was weakened in 89 and that allowed the, the the former satellite states of the Warsaw Pact to gain their 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 independence and sovereignty similarly i think if russia is defeated decisively and moscow is weakened we're going to see this the, the 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 repercussions of this spread across the former soviet space right we're going to see it, russia's influence in georgia diminished um, because it was all dependent basically on Bidzina Ivanishvili and his ties to Russia. That's the only thing that is keeping Georgia somewhat in Russia's orbit right now. Um, we could see it even in Belarus, um, where the you know the Lukashenko regime is extraordinarily unpopular, um, more unpopular for supporting this war. Um, and I, I, I just don't see Lukashenko surviving a Russian defeat. I really have a hard time seeing that. So we're going to have this 1989, we might, in the pod, in this scenario, have a possible 1989 moment. What do we do, Max? I mean, what do we? How do we handle that this time? <laughs> uh, what did we learn from last time? Well, you know, I think sometimes we beat ourselves up uh, a little too much about um, about our our past efforts. I, I think, look, uh, I, I think part of what we need to be uh, prepared for is to be uh, open to the potential that you're right, Brian. Right. And, and that, you know, if, if, if there is a shift in regime and suddenly that regime says, okay, we're going to change, we're going to let Alexei Navalny out of prison, we're going to move in a certain direction. Well, we need to have a certain skepticism. And, you know, I think our, you know, Eastern European friends are, uh, you know, have a lot of insight in, in, in are correct. And they, you know, uh, have will have real skepticism about the future of Russia. On the other hand, the United States didn't ask Ireland for what its policy toward the UK should be. Um, that we will, I think, need to have at times a broader perspective, in some ways a hopeful one, that may get a little ahead of ourselves at times. And I think the one thing I would just say is that, you know, we have focused much on the last decade about the decline of democracy, the decline of the West. That has been a huge narrative that has been pushed, and it, it has looked accurate, right? Democracy has been in trouble, and the West has looked sort of shaky. In some ways, I think what we're seeing here is that the West is much stronger than we give it credit for. And I think that is a realization that is not just occurring in uh, in Ukraine and in Europe, but elsewhere around the world. Uh, and that can have really positive demonstration effects that 1989, uh, 1848, you know, liberal revolutions tend to happen, in, you know, the Arab Spring happened in waves. They don't always go in a great direction. They can sometimes be countered. But I think what we could see is that maybe the kind of end of liberal democracy, that the end of history narrative um, was obviously, uh, we were too excited about it. But, you know, it, it's going to be a struggle, but may not have been entirely wrong. Uh, right. and, and I think that's what we have to just simply be open for. And and the last thing I'd say, and this I'm sort of going on, I want to hear what Jeff has to say about this, is that I think oftentimes the United States has been quick to not align its foreign policy with its values uh, and, and be very short-sighted in how we've uh, approached uh, certain countries or certain issues. And taking the long, playing the long game, I think, means being basically the one that is aligned with democracy and our values. And then when countries come to those values, then we'd be open for it. And so I think that's the broader right. approach we need to take. Well, I mean, the, the scenario I was thinking of is where Russia doesn't, basically Russia remains Russia, but we have a free Belarus on our hands, 
We have a, a Georgia that's free of Russian oligarchic influence on our hands. We have a Moldova that's free of Russian oligarchic influence on our hands. Suddenly we have countries knocking, knocking on the West door again, you know, and how do we handle that situation? I mean, do we, I mean, I'm assuming that Ukraine's NATO membership is going to be, is, is going to be a, a, a very, very, uh, is going to be fast-tracked after, if, if it's successful in this war. I don't see how it can't be. But then it might, it's not going to be just about Ukraine. It's going to be about Belarus. It's going to be about Georgia, and it's going to be about Moldova. Jeff, Jeff, what are you, what are you, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so I'm maybe not as optimistic about the fast tracking of Ukraine's NATO membership. Um, I think it would be a clear Russian defeat would be the moment to do that. Yep. But I also think that's going to be a moment when there's a lot of uncertainty and, and gnashing of teeth. Um, again, you know, I think about what, what Schultz said recently about going back right. to the old security architecture. I think there's a lot of uh, inertia uh, about some of right. these issues. And, you know, when you asked about 1989 and, and the lessons, I, I think maybe that's one of the lessons is that, you know, if you think about moments of founding of, of new orders, in a lot of ways, 1989 was less ambitious than, say, 1945. Um, right. We kept doing a lot of the same things, but maybe we extended the geographic reach of them. I, I, I think 1945 was the last time we really sat down and said, okay, what are the global and regional institutions that we need for the new world that we're living in? Um, if there's a comparable moment of uncertainty and fluidity at the end of this war, I think that would be the moment to then really have a, a, a very fundamental reassessment of of the nature of a lot of these international institutions, mm -hmm. which many many of which, let's be honest, are not functioning uh, particularly well, in part because of the ability of countries like Russia and China right. to uh, obstruct their functioning. So, you know, maybe it does mean that we do something that is more uh, based around the idea of, of what used to be called the free world, uh, you know, and not only in the European space, but in a, in a larger mm -hmm. uh, geography as well. The only other thing I would add, I guess, in terms of what we could do is, and I, I think this is also a lesson from 1989, is uh, make sure that we do enough to maintain the domestic consensus for mm -hmm. remaining deeply engaged in Europe, but in the world more broadly. I think it's natural, uh, especially in a country like America, which is insulated in a lot of ways from things that are happening over the oceans, to want to treat these moments of victory or of uh, the end of conflict as a moment to retrench and to come back home. Uh, I think we did that to a significant degree after the end of the Cold War. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now in part we're paying the price for that because we do have this very polarizing domestic debate with mm -hmm. voices on both the left and the right who are making the case that we need to do less. Um, and there are, you know, pretty strong uh, political currents pushing in that direction, even if we're the the Biden administration has been uh, resisting them. But I think that maintaining that consensus right. and doing more within our own domestic political and information space to uh, educate the American public about how the United States depends on maintaining this kind of right. free and open international order and, and remaining committed to that after the end of, of the current conflict will be really important as well. Yeah, no, and you mentioned 1945, Jeff, and I mean, one thing, one key component of the of 1945 was this very strong bipartisan domestic consensus that existed in the United States at that time, um, which it looks like a an artifact from a from a from a lost civilization right now, but it, but it it did exist. Uh, last word to you, Max, before we wrap up. 
Well, I, you know, I agree with with what Jeff said, and I guess to just bring it to more practical um, focus on, you know, NATO expansion on EU expansion. You know, I think the it's I think EU expansion is critical for Ukraine. I think the 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 fear that I have is that Ukraine gets sort of locked out of Europe because it can't actually settle its borders, that the war can't actually end, which means that it's not going to be able to become an EU member. But assume that it, it, it does sort of win the war or, or have borders that it can accept, then EU expansion, um, it will be transformative for right. Ukraine. And I think will be transformative for the European Union. Uh, and I think the Western Balkans as well, because uh, if Ukraine is on track to getting in, then a lot of those countries that have been waiting will be on track to get in. And for that to happen, and this is what makes some of our Eastern European EU members uncomfortable, is there will have to be reform of the EU. Right. That there's no way France is going to let Ukraine in with the current rules where a country like Hungary, <laughs> one country, can just block what's happening on an EU right. level. And this will lead to, I think, the European Union looking much more like a federal state if there is a, a constitutional or treaty reform than it currently does today. Mm. So right now the EU sort of stuck with this treaty that doesn't quite work as well. And I think that would be globally transformational if that were to occur and yep. something the United States should be very much in favor of. Yeah, uh, no, I'm with you on that. And would it bring in not just the, the 50 million Ukrainians, but also... Uh, the Western Balkans. And it would be, I think, a truly unprecedented situation to have, I mean, Europe fully united in that sense. Right. Um, and and that would be something for Russia to have to come to terms yeah. with as well. Well, and I and I still am not giving up on the Georgians, the Moldovans, or even the Belarusians. Quite frankly, at this, I think I think we could be on the cusp of something that 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 transformational. Well, that's a nice positive note to wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you: you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from downtown Washington has been former U.S. State Department official Max Bergman, who served among other posts as Secretary of State's policy planning staff and as a speechwriter for former Secretary of State John Kerry. These days, Max is director of the Europe and Russia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Also joining us from downtown Washington has been Jeff Mankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published and excellent book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I got my copy. Max got his copy. You all should get your copy as well. It's helped Jeff sell some books. I'd also like to add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. Uh, thank you both for an enlightening discussion and for making us all a little bit smarter. Thanks, Brad. Thanks. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holberg handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access 
all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And for now, you can still follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 